Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is where we're going to be finding ourselves today and uh, continuing through our study in the Ten Commandments. We've been uh, studying through this for a number of weeks now. This is week eight. We've been taking one commandment every single week. And uh, it's just been, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been personally really encouraging and also challenging as we look at all of these, uh, these Ten Commandments together. And today we're looking at commandment number eight in Exodus chapter 20. Also, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use your smartphone or your tablet and open up the YouVersion Bible app and you can follow along there as well. Uh, my name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption and I'm just excited to be able to uh, share God's word with you today. It's a, a privilege and a joy and an honor. When Micah, the girls, and I, my wife Micah, and, and our four daughters, we um, set off on this journey to go plant a church. We were living in Southern California, and uh, we had received all this, you know, confirmation from the Lord and decided to head out. One of the things that we had to do was move. Yeah, I, I know that's probably really uh, a surprise to you that we had to move in order to do that, that uh, God brought us to Colorado. And so we set out on this thousand mile journey to uh, trek across the United States. And as we did, it took us a couple of days to get here. And uh, in doing so, uh, in moving, we had to leave our house. And, and if any of you've moved, you know what that process is like. You know, you're packing all the things up. You're putting all the stuff together. You're trying to figure out what this is going to, where it's all going to go. Do we want to keep this? Sometimes, I don't know if you've moved in a hurry. Sometimes you just pack things that you don't really want and you just end up taking them with you. Um, but, you know, as you move, you're, you're coming into a new spot. Well, my wife and I had rented the house that we were in in California for five years. And so we'd been there for five years. And uh, one of the things that we really valued and really did was we wanted to leave the, the property, our landlord's property, better than we had received it. And so we worked really hard to put in different uh, little upgrades into the home, to care for it really well, to make sure that it was taken care of really, really well. And so we did. We left the, the property in much better condition than we had received it when we had moved. And um, as we got to Colorado and started unpacking all of our things and, and uh, started life here, a month later, we received our deposit check in the mail. And when we received that deposit check, it was short by $500. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have an extra 500 bucks just laying around like, oh, no big deal. And so we are just shocked by this. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We just had all the expense of moving. We just, you know, used a ton of our savings to, to invest in starting this church and getting this going. And so now we're out this other $500. What is happening? And so we reached out to our landlord and tried to figure out what was going on. And in, in, in essence, what he had done was he had falsely cited us for a lot of uh, things that he thought uh, that we didn't do or didn't clean properly or whatever and said that uh, we didn't, we didn't um, uh, leave the, the property in the right condition. And so he took that $500 out of our deposit. That, that, was, that was crazy. And here's the reason why he did it. Because he knew that the $500 was less than the amount of money it would take us to take a thousand mile journey back to California and then go through the court process of figuring out how to take care of this. He manipulated the system and he stole from us. Have you ever had somebody steal from you? You ever experienced what that's like? You ever felt being, being stolen from and the kind of uh, just frustration and anger and, and sometimes panic and worry that it can stir up within you? Uh, that, that's what we're looking at today as we look at commandment number eight. Commandment number eight very simply is don't steal. Uh, and so here's our big idea as we're looking at uh, commandment number eight. It's this, that human sovereignty is a reflection of God's sovereignty. That, that's our big thought. So keep that in mind, that, that the, the sovereignty that you and I have, human sovereignty, it's, a, it's not ours in and of ourselves. It's actually a reflection of God's sovereignty. And that sets things in the right order. So let's read Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, and then we'll look at it. We'll break it down. We'll, we'll kind of uh, take some time to pull it apart. So it says very simply, Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. All right, let's pray. Father, today as we give ourselves to you in singing your praise and studying your word, we pray that you would help us to engage with you. We're expecting that you would speak to us. God, and we realize and recognize, especially during these times of, of doing online church and everyone being separated from one another, that we're not separated from you. 
that, that you are still God, you are still on the throne, you are still in control, that, that you are still that close friend. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for the way that we can use technology to stay connected with one another. We thank you for the way that you can speak to us and speak through us. And we pray that today as we open your word, that you would deliver your thoughts, your heart straight to us. God, we commit today to you and we thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today as we look at Exodus 20:15 and this idea that you shall not steal, we're going to break it down and look at two thoughts, two parts today. The first one is going to be universal acceptance and the second one, universal participation. Now, when we started the Ten Commandments, we noted how God began with himself. Maybe you were with us when we started our series in the Ten Commandments. Maybe you're joining us for the first time. Hey, welcome. I'm so glad that you're tuning in and checking stuff out. Uh, or, or maybe you've missed a few along the way. But if you remember back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, the way that it all starts is God starts with himself. God doesn't start by giving a bunch of rules. God doesn't give us a list of check, a checklist of do's and don'ts. God starts with himself. And this is, think of it like this. It's like, it's like a dad having a family meeting. Here God has redeemed and rescued his people, just like we were singing, gracious redeemer, that, that God has redeemed his people, brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of captivity. And, the, and one of the first things he does is he takes them to this mountain and he has a family meeting together. He's dealing with the various rebellion that's found within his kids. Now, some of his kids are guilty of all of these. Some of them are only guilty of some. And, and so God is targeting different things in dealing with his kids in this family meeting. And God establishes himself first and foremost as the center of all of this. And that's vital for us to grasp. Because if we don't keep in mind and, and keep centered in the middle of all of what we're looking at, that God is the centerpiece of the Ten Commandments, then we turn it into a religious ritual, a religious set of rules. And that's not at all what God's giving to us here in the Ten Commandments. And so God brings this together all, all around himself, and he does this for two specific reasons. Number one, the, the first reason that God is, does this is because the law is a revelation of God. It's not speculation about God. This isn't Moses' musings. This isn't some stuff that people, old sages are sitting around getting together. Moses didn't get a, a, a group tank together and, and kind of think, okay, what are some cool things that we could think of as the best stuff uh, of, of the kinds of laws that we could give to people? This didn't happen thousands of years later uh, as um, some religious rulers got together and decided, what are we going to do in order to control people? This is actually God revealing himself. That, that is a, a vital thing for us to get because it's not, all of these things are, are um, showing us who God is. You see, the law is an unveiling of the character and nature of God to us. That's what God's doing in the Ten Commandments. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what it's like to be, uh, be my people. This is what it is to understand me is what God is saying. Now, the law, the stuff that God writes here, as he writes these good and bad things, these things aren't good and bad based on arbitrary opinion. You know, it's not just uh, an arbitrary random thing. It's not popular opinion. You know, God didn't take a poll of the angels. Hey guys, you guys all get to vote and uh, we're going to decide if murder is good. Uh, and you know, 51% of the angels said murder's wrong. So God said, all right, let's do that. It also wasn't random chance. God didn't flip coins to try to figure out what was going to be good and what was going to be bad. All of this, whatever is good, whatever is bad is based on, does it line up with God's character? Is it in line with his nature? Does it, does it flow from who he is? Or is it, is it in direct contradiction to who God is? Is it a rebellious thought about who God is? Is it going against who he is? So number one, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest reasons or the two main reasons uh, why God puts himself at the center of it all is because the law is revelation of God, not speculation about God. And secondly, the law is what we do because we are God's kids. The law is not what we do in order to become God's kids. That, that what God has done is he's already shown his love for his people. He's already redeemed them. He's already saved them. He's already leading them. He's already guiding them. He's already providing for them. This isn't, if you do this, then you get to be my people. This is because you are my people, this is what I want you to do. And so we've got to get these straight. Otherwise, we turn it into uh, something that is not intended. You see, our doing flows out of our being. So we've got to be first, then we do. 
And so if, as the people of God, we, we rest in the character and nature of God and being with him actually transforms us into becoming more like him, which is why here at Redemption, we go through the Bible and we go through lots of the Bible because we need God to change us, to transform us, to be more like him. So let's look at this first idea, universal acceptance uh, here as we take a look at this, uh, this commandment, number eight, uh, do not steal. You shall not steal. Um, the first thing I want to grasp with this is that God is a God of order. God is a God of order. He's also a God of logic. That everything within his creation, everything that God has made, exists within these things. That, that everything in creation has order and logic attached to it. If we can't figure it out, you know, there's stuff that we don't understand how it works. It doesn't mean that order and logic are not there. It just means we don't understand it. That order and logic still exist. And as we seek to understand God, it's vital that order and logic are present in understanding him. That the, the idea here is that the only reason that we can understand anything is because it has order and logic applied to it. Think about it as you're just listening to me talk to you right now. If I was to take words and take them out of order and apply no logic to them, there would be no understanding. You wouldn't be able to grasp anything that I'm saying right now at all. And the reason that you can is because there is order and because there is logic. If you remove these, then it produces nonsense. Here's how 1 Corinthians 14.33 says it. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the meetings of God's holy people. God is a God of order. Uh, God is not a God of disorder. Now, this verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, what, what it's doing is it's taking this big overarching concept, the orderliness, the, the logic of God, and it's applying it specifically to spiritual gifts and the, the orderliness of the church, the conduct of the church. But in that, God's order reaches into more than just the conduct of the church. It reaches into literally every aspect of life. Everything about our lives is centered around these ideas. That order and logic allow us to both understand and experience God's creation. And they allow us to experience God himself. This is huge. That, that if we want to know, understand, and experience God, order and logic are going to be a part of of that. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to understand everything because some concepts are too big for you to understand. Here, here's an example. Maybe you can remember back to math. You remember math? Um, some of you are like, yeah, I remember math. Please don't make me do any math. Uh, well, here's the thing. When you were first learning math, you learned that two plus two can't equal brown, right? That's one of the biggest things you got to grasp. There is a logical flow to this thing. But later on, when you got into high school level math, when you got into some of that algebra stuff, you, you learned that two plus two can equal X, that you learned that there's this thing where you can solve for X. Now, if you were to take a six-year-old and say, did you know that letters are involved in math? They would say, ha, 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 that's funny because it makes no sense to them. There, there's no logic that applies to, it to, to them and their view, what they can understand. But as they grow, as they develop, as they mature, then they can understand how, oh, letters do apply. Letters can apply to math. You see, just because it was ridiculous when you were younger doesn't mean that it's ridiculous as a concept. And the same is true with us. My ability to not understand doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means I'm unaware of it or I'm unable to understand it. And so with God, both, uh, God can both uh, do things and uh, transcend, do things that transcend our ability and he can be things that transcend our ability to understand and yet he can retain all of his goodness, all of who he is and remain within the ideas of order and logic. That's how supernatural stuff happens, right? Like Jesus walking on water, that's a supernatural thing. It doesn't transcend order and logic in terms of, of the reality. It just transcends my ability to understand it. How did he do it? I don't know. I can't tell you how, but he did. And there's order and logic applied to it. Now, as we apply that idea, right, this big concept of, of order and logic to number eight, to, to uh, this, this uh, commandment number eight, we see in verse 15 of Exodus 20, you shall not steal. As we apply that idea, we've got to, to understand that this is a concept that flows out of another concept. 
that there's something undergirding, there's something holding up, there's something before you should not steal. Without one concept, the other one can't exist. It's literally that there's a foundation for the other one. The first concept here is the idea of personal property. That's the first concept. Without the idea of personal property, there's no such thing as stealing. It's not even a a possibility for that to happen. If I can't own it, then it can't be stolen from me. The same way that if I don't have kids, I can't call myself a dad, right? If I say, if I go around saying, Hey, I'm a dad and people go, Oh, that's great. How many kids do you have? And I go, none. You're going to go, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? Like there's, this is not something that you just get to say and just get to do that. There is something associated with this on a deeper level. You've got to actually apply one idea before you get the second one. Now, the sense of personal property, it's ingrained to all of humanity. That that we all just get this. We all just understand this idea that everybody knows that they have things and it's wrong for somebody else to take my things. Everybody gets that. Everybody understands that. Parents with multiple kids really get this because when you have not just one kid, but you have multiple kids, then what you have is a constant war in your home because the heathens want to murder each other for the stuff. So then you're violating two commandments, right? Murder and stealing. Uh, and, and, and in this, you know, when you have little kids, you know, I, I remember all of my girls, my oldest was four and a half when my youngest was born. So we were really, really busy. We had four kids under five, under four and a half years old, and it was absolute chaos for a number of years in our home. It was a lot of fun, but we were really tired for a lot, a lot of that. And in that, I never taught my girls to yell mine and grab things and push each other, but they totally did it. They knew how to do that. They was just ingrained into who they are. They understood that they wanted stuff. And the other one didn't just say, oh, that's cool. They screamed and cried and freaked out because they understood that their property, their dominion, their sovereignty was being violated. You see, personal property, it's an issue of sovereignty and dominion. All of this stuff connects back to one idea. So turn in your Bibles real quick, if you would, to Genesis chapter one. Go back to the very, very beginning. Uh, Genesis is gonna be to the left in your Bible, all the way at the very front. There's nothing before it. Genesis chapter one, I wanna take you to one idea and show you how these concepts flow out of each other in verses 27 and 28 of Genesis chapter one. It says this in Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, this verse shows us this exact flow of thought. In verse 27, we see that people are created as image bearers of God. Now, this is unique. Nothing else in all of creation is said to be an image bearer of God. Not the, the stars and the sun, not uh, the, the sky, not the plants, not the sea, not the animals in the sea or in the, on the earth or in the air. None of the stuff, none of, none of the vegetables. Uh, nothing is an image bearer of God except you, me, humanity. We are image bearers of God. And part of being an image bearer of God, it it deals with the idea of sovereignty. You see, the sovereignty of humanity is a reflection of the sovereignty of God because he's sovereign, because he's over, because he is uh, the one who has dominion or superiority or is above. So too, he is given that to us. You want me to prove it to you? Well, read the next verse. Look at at verse 28. It, It says there, that God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply, then look, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. God translates his sovereignty. He gives his authority. He gives his dominion. He says, I'm over this, and I want you to be over this as well. You see, as image bearers of God, he places lower creation under our dominion. And lower creation means everything under humanity because we are unique in creation as image bearers of God. So everything else needs to be placed under our authority. And this is because of him. You see, from this comes the ideas of ownership and stewardship. Everything belongs to God. And God graciously gives some of it to me to manage. That's the ideas of ownership and stewardship. I'm sort of an owner in terms of God has given me some things, but 
But I've got to take that concept a step further and realize I really don't own anything because at the end of the day, at the end of my life, I'm not taking anything with me. So as much as I own, as much as I have, as much of stuff as I pile up, as much of those things that I try to hold on to in my life, you can take none of it with you. You give it all back to the Lord, right? Oh, you're like, well, somebody else is going to take it. Well, let's carry that out to the full end. At the end of everything, when everybody is gone and everybody dies and we're at the end of humanity and there's, there's heaven and hell and that's it, everything goes back to the Lord. Everything belongs to God. And so as a steward, the question I have to ask is, am I managing God's stuff well? Am I doing with it what he thinks I should be doing with it? That God gives it to me. His authority, his uh, sovereignty is reflected down to me and I reflect some of his sovereignty. Now, stealing is, is wrong, not because evolution of culture and society. It's not that, you know, the cavemen were sitting around a fire one day and they're like, don't take my fire or don't take my rock or whatever. And then they go, we should make this a law. That, that, that is not, that's not how it happened. Right from the very beginning, right here in, in creation, the caveman that doesn't exist wasn't there. It was Adam and Eve. And God put them in place and God gave them his sovereignty right from the very beginning. You see, the reason that stealing is wrong is because it violates God's nature. That's why stealing is wrong. So not only do we see universal acceptance, but secondly, universal participation. Um, here, here's the big idea that I want to, to grasp within this is that, that, that everybody is participating in this. Now, maybe you're thinking, I'm not a thief. What are you talking about? I'm not stealing things. Well, I think by the end of this that you're going to realize it's worse than you really thought. Here, here's the thing. The heart of humanity's plunge into rebellion at the fall in Genesis 3, right? We're in Genesis 1. It doesn't take very long. You get to Genesis chapter 3, and you see that the humanity plunges into what is called the fall, which means that sin corrupts everything. It comes into the world and it wrecks everything. At that moment, when, when, the, when humanity plunges into rebellion at the fall, the, re, the rejection, uh, uh, it, what it is, is it's a rejection of God in his ways. It has, it has nothing to do with fruit, okay? It's not that apples are bad. It's not that I have a theory that the, the fruit on the tree was probably a tomato because they're evil. Uh, and so we can talk about that later if you want to. But, uh, you know, the thing is, is that it has nothing to do with fruit. It has nothing to do with, you know, what is, what is the evil fruit? No, it's not that at all. The thing that it has to do with is the choice, the conscious decision to say, I don't want God's way. I want my own way. I want to go my own way and do my own thing. I'm going to reject God's way and replace it with my own. And from this comes theft. That's where stealing comes from. Now, at this point, I think it's important for us to really define stealing. And the reason is, is because thieves like to find loopholes. <laughs> and so they want to try to figure a way out to justify their sin. And so stealing is this. It's taking the property of another against their will whether by secret or by force. I'll repeat that again. Stealing is taking the property of another against their will, whether by secret or by force. And so when we think about this, uh, I think it's important for us to grasp when it says there in, in Exodus, you shall not steal, there's, there's, no, there's no more to the verse. There's no exception clauses. There's no, well, it's okay when. There's none of that going on. It's not, it's not saying that, you know, it's okay or you shall not steal unless they're rich. Then you can steal from them. It's, it's not okay to steal. You should not steal unless they have two and they only need one. Then you can take it. It's okay. You shall not steal unless you've got a really good reason. Then you can steal. You know, or it, doesn't, it doesn't say you cannot steal unless you really want it. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I should say this or not. Maybe I'm going to get some emails on this, but I don't know if you've watched Guardians of the Galaxy, but it's like the, the character Rocket, okay? He, he's like always stealing things and, he, and he's like, there's this dialogue that he has in one of the movies and he says, yeah, but you don't understand. I want it more than he wants it. That's not how it works. Like you don't just get to take stuff just because you want it. There's no exception clause to this. Stealing is absolutely forbidden because it violates the character and nature of God. Now, stealing is wrong for two reasons. I want to show you, uh, describe these for you. It's a lot more than just losing stuff 
or gaining stuff. Stealing has a lot more to do with than just that. Number one, the reason that stealing is wrong is because it accuses God of failing to provide for you adequately. When you're stealing, when you, when you go out and take things or somebody takes things from you, it's an indictment against God. God, you failed me. You haven't provided for me. You haven't done what I needed. You haven't taken the stuff, uh, my stuff into consideration. You haven't taken my needs into consideration. I don't trust that you're going to provide for me. I don't think that you're going to come through for me. So I've got to take matters into my own hands and go get it. I'm going to go steal it from somebody else. You see, stealing is out, uh, actually an outward expression of an inward need for more. Turn in your Bibles. We're going to go to the very back of your Bible now. Go to James chapter 4. All right, so that's going to be way toward the back. James is after the book of Hebrews. Um, and uh, so, so if you find Hebrews, that's one of the bigger books of the Bible toward the back there, uh, then find James. If you get to Peter, you went too far. Go back to James um, and you'll, you'll see it there. Or 1 John, things like that. Revelation, you're definitely too far. You want to go back. James chapter 4, and I want to show you a couple of verses here uh, that talk about this. Now, as we're going through this, um, I, I just want you to, to be engaged with what's happening here in James 4 and what it's saying, all right? So look, look there at verse 1, verses 1 through 3, James 4, 1 through 3 says this, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You see that there? He says, where, do this, where does this strife, where does this outward strife and problems, where does that come from? Well, it comes from not out there. It's not them. It's not over there. It's actually in here. It's within your own heart. He says, it comes from your desires. Look at verse two. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, here in James 4, 1 through 3, we see that discontentment leads to further sin. When you're not content with the things of God, when you're not ready for, for what God wants for you, when you're not willing to let God set the, the tone and the standard, when you're not trusting that God has given you some stuff and that's the stuff that he thinks that you should steward, when, when you're discontented, that will lead you to further sin. And it lists a bunch of other sins in here in terms of coveting and murder and uh, lusting and all of that kind of stuff. Now in this, look, at, look there at verse two, he tells you the reason why is because you don't ask. Hey, here's a thought. Instead of stealing it, ask God for it. Maybe the Lord will actually give it to you. Perhaps God would say, sure, I'll, I'll give this to you. Just like a good dad would want to give good gifts to his kids. That, that's the way that the Lord works. Of, of course God wants to be a blessing to you. God, of course God wants to lead you into what is right and appropriate. And perhaps if you just asked for it, the Lord would give it to you. But look at verse, there's another verse, right? There's another verse there. Verse three, some stuff you won't get because, notice what it says there in verse three. He's, it says, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You see, here's the thing. Some stuff God's not gonna give you because it feeds your flesh, because it feeds your selfishness, because it feeds that discontentment. You think getting more stuff is gonna make you more content. And let me tell you, it never will. That is a never-ending bottomless pit. There's no amount of stuff that will ever make you content because contentment has nothing to do with what you have and has everything to do with your security and who you are. And if you're not secure in Christ, if you, haven't, if you haven't received the salvation that Jesus has given to you by dying and bleeding on a cross and being buried in a tomb and raising three days later, if you haven't, if you haven't received the salvation that Jesus supplies from that, then there is no amount of stuff that's ever gonna make you content. Just look at any, any one of the celebrities that are filled with depression and worry and anxiety and they've got so much stuff. They got way more stuff than you would ever have. They got way more stuff than you could ever imagine. And yet they're still discontent. Something's wrong within their heart, within their soul because discontentment has to do with trust in God, not obtaining more things. You see, some stuff God's not gonna give you because it feeds your flesh and therefore it's harmful instead of helpful. Two reasons why stealing is wrong. Number one, it accuses God of failing to provide adequately. And number two, it mistreats the people God made in his image. Let me ask you a question. Which people did God make, make in his image? 
All of them. Yeah, that's the right answer. All of them. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what language you speak. I don't care how much, how much uh, um, you know, uh, pigmentation you have in your skin. If you're pink like me, or if you've got a natural tan, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter where we're at, where we're from, where we grew up. You are made in the image of God. We are all, as humans, image bearers of God. And when we steal from other people, it violates their God-given sovereignty. That, that's what happens to us. When you feel that, that, that anxiety, that rip, that, that frustration within your heart, when someone steals from you, that all is a violation of your God-given sovereignty. That God has reflected his sovereignty to you and you know what's wrong because that's just not the way that it should be. You're violating me. Think, think what the world would be like if we didn't have to guard our stuff. If we didn't have to guard the sanctity of property, what would the world be like? I mean, how much more uh, would, would businesses make in profit if they didn't have to worry about guarding their things? How much, how much would your life totally change. Here's the thing. There are so much, there are so many things in our normal lives that are set aside to guarding the sanctity of property uh, that it's ingrained into everything about who we are. And, and I think it's, it's so much so that we tend to miss it. It's just always there. It's always on. It's always happening. I mean, you have a, a lock on the door of your house, I'm sure. You probably have multiple locks on multiple doors in your home. Uh, you, you've probably got a lock on your car, right? You, you probably don't leave your keys in your car and leave it out in the street. You probably have an alarm on your car. Maybe you even have an alarm on your house. Maybe you've got a fence around your yard. And maybe you've got a dog in that yard. And maybe you've got a gun in your house. And maybe you've got a knife on your purse. I carry a knife. I got one with me right now. I always carry a pocket knife. That's one of the things. And all of that stuff, like I don't necessarily carry a knife for, uh, for self-defense kind of a thing. But all of that stuff, all of it is applied to the idea of security. Maybe you take self-defense classes, you know, and you know jujitsu or you know karate or something and you know how to, how to do different, d different things and, and protect yourself. And really all of it has to do with the idea of guarding uh, your, your stuff. Technologically, I, I bet you your debit card has a passcode on it and it's probably not 1111. If it is, change it. Um, it's a bad password. Um, but you know, you got a, a, some sort of code on that. Your phone probably has a code on it, a lock on it, or if you got a cool iPhone like me, then your face can unlock your phone. Um, that's a great thing to be able to do. That Those are security measures. Um, maybe, you know, you've got a thousand passwords that you can't remember because you've got to log into this and log into that and get over there to this and, and be a part of that. And, and all of those things, they're all security measures to guard the sanctity of property. Uh, maybe in that you also technologically, excuse me, not technologically, but when you go to the store, every time you walk into the store, all of the, the different items that they have in the store, they've all got little tags on them and, and you gotta make sure that uh, those tags are disconnected or taken off or, or made null and void uh, before the, the item goes out of the store. Otherwise, once you go through there, there's, there's a security system that's going to uh, set off an alarm. Or maybe, you know, they've got security cameras in the store. They're watching what you're doing and maybe there's guards posted at certain places. Like I saw one of those pictures on Facebook of, you know, it, it said in, in, uh, back in the eighties, we thought that there would be flying cars in 2020. And, and the picture actually, you know, said, it said 2020 and there were cops guarding toilet paper. You know, it's like, this is crazy. The, the world that we're living in. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, the reality is that this, all this stuff has got to be guarded. And when we start diving into it and start thinking about it, this, it is so layered and so ingrained to our lives that it's hard to really imagine. Now, there are countless ways by which people steal. And we all agree that it's wrong, don't we? We all know, know that it's wrong, especially when it's done to us. But here's what's funny. We tend to justify our own theft. We, we know it's, I hate when it happens to me. I know it's wrong when it happens to me. But we tend to say, you know what? There's a reason why. And, and you know, it really wasn't that bad. And it wasn't actually stealing. It was, and you put another word on it in order to justify it. You see, even the thief recognizes that, ste recognizes that stealing is wrong, especially when stuff is stolen from him. 
the thief. Here's how George Ralston puts it in the pulpit commentary, volume three, page 159. He says this, all condemn the thief. He's condemned even by his own conscience. However much he may steal from others, he can never think it right for them to steal from him. Isn't that, isn't that a funny idea? You know, even the thief knows that when people steal from him, it's wrong. Uh, that this is just some, everybody knows that it's wrong. Now, there are lots of different ways that we steal. And I just want to spend the, some of the rest of our time here just kind of laying out some of this stuff for us to see how prevalent this is within our culture. Now, one of the big ways that this happens, it's, it's sort of an underlying way. It's theft by dishonesty. Theft by dishonesty is a mass, massive thing that happens. It's, it's to use ig the ignorance of people against them. That's what you do. You, you take people they don't understand, they don't know, and so you use that against them. It's kind of like a, uh, uh, someone who is a collector of rare things and they go to an estate sale and they know that uh, they see this thing and they know that it's really, really valuable. And so they're like, hey, I'll take that for five bucks. And the other person has no idea what it is or how valuable it is. And they're like, okay. And they give it to him for $5 and the guy turns around and sells it for millions of dollars. That's theft. That's stealing. It's to use someone's ignorance against them in order to take from them. It's like, you know, little kids, when they first learn about money, sometimes little kids are like, hey, I'll give you three dimes for your $1. I mean, it's, I got three, you've only got one. That's a great idea. You know, the big kid's taking advantage of the little kid because they know something the little kid doesn't know. I, I would say that this even applies to many panhandlers. The guy standing on the side of the road, uh, you know, a lot of those guys, they make way more money than most of us make and they're standing there begging for things and what they're doing is they're trying to manipulate your emotions and use your ignorance of their actual situation in order to steal from you. It's actually theft. I remember this happened to me one time, um, not the panhandler thing, but I, I remember when I was in seventh grade. Uh, there was a, um, a new kid that came to school in seventh grade and uh, we were, you know, me, I, I was, maybe I still am, socially awkward and really had a hard time uh, <laughs> connecting with people and really just, you know, was, was weird. And so uh, when new kids came, I knew that they felt weird and I just wanted to do everything I could to, to make sure that they felt welcome and make sure that they felt uh, comfortable and so I'd befriend the new kids and so I befriended, befriended this kid named Leo and uh, we were hanging out together and uh, um, one, one day he said uh, not, not too, too long into the relationship you know into him moving there I think it was a few days later he said hey you know what I've just had a really hard time with my science homework because we had the same science class and he goes hey could I borrow your homework and uh, copy it and then give it back to you and um, I was not wise and said, yeah, that, okay. Because my desire to help him, my desire to please him, my desire to make him my friend overrode my, you know, wisdom. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, yeah. And so I gave him my homework. And then uh, later on that day, he said, oh man, I'm so sorry. I lost your homework. I, I just feel so terrible. And I was, you know, really worried about this because it was a, a massive part of our grade, this specific homework was. And I was like, oh man, I'm... Uh, okay, well, I don't know what to do because, you know, I guess we're stuck. And so, you know, we go to class and everything and I get a, I get a zero on the assignment and I had to work extra hard to get my grade back up through the rest of the year. But here's the thing. The next day, I found my homework assignment out on the playground. It was just, you know, laying on the ground somewhere. And I recognized it because it was all my handwriting. And at the top, my name was erased and his name was put on there and it had a good grade on it. You see, he turned in my homework and he didn't even, he didn't even, uh, uh, um, uh, he didn't copy it or anything. He just took my homework from me. He stole from me. He used my ignorance and my willingness to try to help against me in order to steal from me. Now, that not only just by the idea of dishonesty, but borrowing stuff with no intention to return it. You ever have that happen to you? You're, you know, someone borrows some things and they just have, they never intended to ever return it. It was going to go into the abyss of their garage or basement and never be found again. And whenever you ask about it, it's like, oh yeah, I, I, didn't I give that back to you? That, that, that is stealing. Uh, also, if you mistreat a borrowed thing, you borrow somebody's stuff and you don't treat it well, you break it or wreck it or whatever and you mistreat it, then that is going to be also uh, theft. That's a, uh, a way to steal. Having unpaid bills. If you know you owe something and you don't pay it, that's theft. 
That, that's theft. It's, here's the thing. If you owe that bill, if you owe that money, that's their money in your pocket. And that is stealing. Also, destruction of property. If you break things that aren't yours, that, that's, that's theft. If, even if you break stuff that's uh, sort of this community thing, it's, it's not really anybody's, it's just that thing over there or belongs to the government, this bigger entity, it's still theft, it's still destruction of property. Or if you depreciate something by misuse, if you key somebody's car or if you, you know, just uh, abuse their thing then, then, and you misuse it, then it depreciates the value. Uh, an employee taking supplies, you know, at your work, um, then that's theft. If you take products, that's theft. If you are, you know, on your job and you're not working hard or you're wasting time or you're surfing social media or whatever, you're stealing time. You're stealing from your company. Maybe, maybe you're working on a side hustle and you use one company's time to work on your side job and you're doing that other thing. And, and what you're doing is you're actually stealing from this company in order to do this other thing, in order to produce this other thing. And, and some of you are thinking, yeah, that's no big deal. Whatever. It's not a big deal. Well, here, here's the thing. If your company that you're working on your side hustle ever becomes your major source of income and then you hire employees and they do what you're doing to them, you'd be so mad at them. You'd be so frustrated at them. You'd be, you'd, be, you'd be so angry and saying, why are you wasting my money on your thing? Because it's theft. Because it's stealing. Also, employers can do this by just not paying their workers. You can, we're, we're in James. If you look at chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, it talks about how there's this landowner who keeps back the money that's owed to the workers and doesn't pay them. And so he is uh, accused, or he's accused by God of theft. In stores, you can do this by manipulating the, the system. You know, you ever see that person who's just making a big, big uh, scene and they're just freaking out over some price of something and they're just going crazy and, and you know they're wrong, but they're manipulating the system in order to get a discount? That's theft. Or, or maybe on the other side, right now, one of the big things that people are doing is they're buying up supplies and then they're price gouging. That's theft. Uh, price gouging is, is theft. By not paying your taxes or not fully reporting on your taxes or taking extra deductions, that's theft. Uh, identity theft is a huge one uh, right now. It, it's essentially identity is impersonating so, uh, somebody in order to use your money in order to buy stuff for themselves using your credit, your money, your identity, massive way. And here's one of the things I, I want to encourage you on in this and just caution you with is that with the advances, uh, advances of technology, this gets worse. This gets worse. Fishing, not like going out and catching fish, but fishing technologically is a big problem, and especially during times like this. When people are on edge, when people's emotions are high, when people are scared and unsure, this is the opportunity that, that those people take, those thieves take in order to take from you. So be careful. Don't just trust every email you get. Don't just trust everything that looks like it's from the company that you do business with. Really think, really pay attention, really look into it because those companies aren't going to ask for your vital information in order to do business with you. Uh, so be careful about that stuff if they're starting to ask you for those things. Now, people don't just steal one another from one another. We actually steal from God too. Not only do we steal from each other, but we actually steal from God too. And I want to give you two ways that this takes place. The first one we talked about uh, earlier here at Redemption in our series through Malachi last year, uh, Malachi 3.8 says this, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Here God clearly states that when you're not generous with what, God, what he's given to you by giving back to him, that God counts it as stealing from him. And he gives us two categories. God declares that there, his people steal from him in two ways. Number one is the idea of tithes. And really that's just a word that means 10%. It's 10% of, of an income. Uh, and the difference between a tithe and a tax is love, right? There's a reason why the government doesn't function on donations, right? If they did, ain't nobody given, right? Even though, you know, there's a bunch of socialists out there saying, if we just, you know, had everybody give more, then that would be great. Uh, that, that's not actually, that doesn't, doesn't that actually how it works? Look at how much they get. Are they voluntarily, voluntarily giving more? Uh, no, they're not. Because 
The government has to tax to take it from you. They're not waiting for you to give out of the goodness and, of your heart and love for the government. If they did, they'd be bankrupt. They'd be broke. But God says, I want you to give to me out of love for me. I want you to recognize that I've given you everything. And I want you to recognize that I love you so deeply and I want your giving to me to be out of that overflow of love in your life. Not only does he say tithes, but also in Malachi 3, contributions. And contributions would be giving above that 10%. That you're, you're saying, God, I want to give more. And so you, you do things like support missionaries and you support parachurch ministries and uh, you support charitable organizations and, and even just set aside money to be able to give to people uh, as, as is, uh, you have opportunity to, to bless others and people in need. Now, our stealing from God doesn't, doesn't stop there. It's actually way worse than you think. Um, turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6. I want to show you one, one verse as we begin to wrap up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, um, if I can find it. At the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verses 19 and 20. So if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and then just go backwards a little bit, then you'll find it there. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says it like this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For, look, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here's the thing. Our very lives are given to us by the Lord. And so we owe him everything. We owe him our entire lives because he made us and he bought us. Being, being that your very existence belongs to God any misuse of your life, any misuse of your body, any misuse of your spirit, or doing things that are outside of what God wants for your life, it's actually stealing. That, that's the way that the Bible describes it. Here's how David Guzik says it. He says, to take this life that he purchased and uh, to regard it as your own is theft. Wow, that's a big idea, isn't it? So for me to not submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus, to not do the things with my life that he thinks are right and appropriate, for me to, to, to use my life, even in things that aren't sinful, in ways that are not uh, expressly stated for the Lord, and it's, it's actually theft to not submit my life to him that way. You see, all four gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified between two men. And three of those gospels tell us that they were, they were criminals, that they were thieves, they were condemned to die for breaking the law. That's what they were condemned to die for. One of, one of these thieves softened his heart in repentance to Jesus. And one, the other one hardened his heart in rebellion against Jesus. One of the thieves crucified with Jesus found eternal life and the other found eternal death because he rejected Jesus. You see, these two men, they actually represent all of humanity. Every single one of us. The question is not if you're a thief. The question is, which one are you? Are you the thief that will soften your heart in repentance to God, recognizing that I've, my life it has stolen from the Lord and that I'm not living for his glory and I haven't submitted myself to his lordship and, and I just, uh, Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you remember me? Would you save me? Or will you be the thief that rejects all of that and says, no, I don't need that. I want to do things my own way. You see, you are not yours. You were bought at a price. So what do we do? What do we do with this, this understanding? Well, number one, I got four things for you to do as we close. Recognize that your life belongs to Jesus and submit to his lordship and authority that you're not yours. Like we just read there in 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought at a price. And so you don't have authority over your own life. That Jesus purchased your life with his blood. That's what he was doing on the cross. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he willingly sacrificed himself. Nobody took his life. That's what he said to Peter. Nobody takes my life from me, Peter. I'm laying it down of my own free will because that's the purchase price of your soul. Because that's how much he loves you. Number one, recognize that Jesus is, is the one who your life belongs to. And number two, seek forgiveness from those you've stolen from, starting with Jesus. Jesus, will you forgive me? 
but it goes deeper into other people. Perhaps you, as we've been thinking through this, you've realized and recognized ways that you've stolen from somebody else. Seek forgiveness from those people and go from there. Go from, go from, from that position of seeking forgiveness and ask the Lord to convict you of other people. Maybe there's someone else that you don't even know about. Ask, take the bold stance and ask him to convict you of who else. Number three, work hard to earn what you have. Labor and spiritual co- is a spiritual component uh, of dignity that's deeply ingrained within human creation. We talked a lot about that in commandment number four, but here's a verse for you. Ephesians chapter four, verse 28 says this. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Here, and here's what you do instead. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. A great fix for stealing is work. Just work hard. Um, Also, fourthly and finally, pursue restitution. Pursue restitution. This is a biblical idea. You can look at more of this in uh, Exodus chapter 22. We're in Exodus 20 in our Ten Commandments. But just go a couple of chapters. Exodus chapter 22, the first 15 verses in that chapter talk about the idea of restitution. And, and, And what this says is that if you've stolen from someone, you owe them back at least double. Sometimes four times more sometimes five times more. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, I stole a car and, and I wrecked it and, you know, whatever. I, I stole a car and, and, and you're like, I should, I should uh, repay that. Uh, you know, you got to pay five, five cars back, right? You're, you can't go steal five cars and pay them back, right? You're, you're compounding the problem that there's something else taking, on, taking place with this. Now, as you seek restitution with people, as you look to pay them back, not just say, will you forgive me, but actually, actually monetarily give back to them, they can absolve you of the debt that you owe them but they don't have to. They don't have to. It's fully within their right to, that you should, you should pay them back. Now, here, here's the, the final thought. I just want to encourage you with this. All of this is living a life of faith. All of this is to say, God, I trust you. I trust your way. I trust what you think is right. I want to submit myself to you. I want to, to live honorably to you. And I realize that my life is stolen time, it's stolen breath, it's stolen sovereignty from you and I need to give my life back to you. And Lord, help me to live rightly and at peace with everybody else because you're a God of order, you're a God of logic, you're a God uh, of putting everything together the way that it goes and I want you to order my life and put it together so that I can live at peace with you and at peace with others. So I'd encourage you today as you think about the things of the Lord and you think about commandment number eight and you shall not steal, that, that Jesus is where it all begins, and Jesus is how we continue moving forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the chance to study it, and we pray that today you would help us, Lord, to uh, understand more deeply what you think about um, life and how it should work. And as we consider the idea of stealing, Lord, would you forgive us for using our lives in a way that's an offense to you and stealing from you and Lord, would you, would you redeem us as your own and cause us to be uh, used for your glory? And so we commit ourselves to you afresh and anew, or maybe even for the first time right now. In, in your name, Jesus. Amen.